Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here. And, you know, this is part of the message of Project Cashmere, of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paul and those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good night, whatever time of the day it is or night it is where you're listening, Project Kashmir's listener. Today, I've got a very interesting guest uh, sitting, I believe, in Houston, in Texas. Austin, uh, Texas. Austin, Texas. Got it completely wrong. Great start. Um, Fred Schmidt, who is the Director of International Affairs at Capital Factory, which is a top incubator and accelerator and investment fund. Um, Fred, rather than me, and he's also an entrepreneur, Fred, rather than me try to introduce you based on my notes, why don't you introduce yourself the way you regularly do to our listeners? Okay. Um, that could be very short or very long. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, let's have the medium version. Okay. Um, so I uh, am what I would term uh, a uh, parallel entrepreneur, uh, and, and uh, I work across both bricks and clicks. So uh, those are a couple of sets of terminology that I've built into who I am and, and what my entrepreneurial uh, journey has been. Uh, so what that means is that I have pretty much my entire life been involved in multiple businesses concurrently uh, before it became 
sort of de rigueur to actually have the top five listings of your LinkedIn account all say from a certain date to present, you know, because you're doing multiple things, which seems to be what we all do in entrepreneurship these days. We're, we're all involved. You're involved, Richard, in four, five, six, seven things uh, concurrently. So, so that's how I've always led my life, not knowing that that would become like the norm. I just thought I was like ADD and, and uh, needed more things to do. Um, and so I'm, I've been involved. My, my, my kind of professional career was formed around uh, the video game business in technology. And that's my click side of my life. In the, it started out as single player video games uh, back in the 48K, 64K uh, machine days. You know, more power on your wristwatch today than, uh, than we had in our entire uh, desktop systems then. Uh, and uh, have been involved with, with computer games for over 30 years in the US, Europe, uh, Korea, and Japan. Uh, and then as a side set of activities, I started some retail businesses. Uh, so I have a whole set with partners uh, of retail, innovative retail uh, businesses in Austin, uh, one in uh, music, one in fashion, uh, one in uh, uh, toys. Uh, and one in uh, food products and candy and vegan ice creams and sweets from around the world. And so we have built all of these things up into a variety of, of business enterprises. Um, in my tech life, uh, I've been involved in uh, two uh, IPO-related uh, events in the game business uh, and uh, built a, a, a video game company for a Korean public company uh, in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, and in the uh, bricks and clicks world, uh, these have all been startup businesses or small acquisitions that we have built and grown uh, to be, you know, a variety of very interesting uh, uh, businesses. So that's all like contemporaneous. That's what I'm doing like now. Uh, my career, though, uh, has been in uh, over a period of 30 years, uh, started off in, in radio and in television, uh, then in broadcast television, then in cable satellite programming, uh, part of the teams that helped launch uh, HBO and MTV and CNN back in the day, uh, and then eventually left the uh, the radio and television worlds to go into computer games, uh, which I saw as the future of entertainment. And I guess uh, we were pretty right because now finally, uh, computer games with VR and esports and everything else has has become quite mass market and is a is now a legitimate popular mainstream form of global entertainment where for the longest time we were told that's not something you should do with your computer you know play games these are workhorses meant to do spreadsheets and you know and heavy computational processing so, mm -hmm. so anyway so that's the that's the big story that's the big story. And to give a sense of the scale of it, I, I don't know whether you can put some numbers on the annual revenue of all the businesses you're responsible for or the number of people you've got, or, you know, just is it in the billions, the hundreds of millions? The no, I'm not, I'm not a billions kind of guy. That's too many zeros uh, for me to keep track of. Again, I, you know, uh, by by virtue of origin, I am a, a, a what I call a, 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 a refugee. I, I came to uh, the United States from Poland. I was actually born not, not too far from, uh, from Krakow, uh, right between Poznan and Bydgoszcz in a little mm -hmm. tiny town called Ksenia, not to be confused with Gdynia, mm -hmm. uh, which most people think of because Ksenia still doesn't have a traffic light to this day and has about 3,000 people. Uh, and uh, so I came to this country uh, as, as a political refugee 
And so I'm, I'm a, you know, person of simple means and, and desires. I love to start businesses. I love to grow them. I love to work with brilliant entrepreneurs. Uh, here at Capital Factory, I have the privilege of working with just amazing entrepreneurs, mostly young people like, uh, like my colleague, Justin, who uh, I just introduced to you before we, we went live, um, who are, who are the future of, you know, the planet and uh, being able to work with young people all the time is what keeps me energized. So my sweet spot, if you will, is to start and grow and develop businesses. And I kind of get off the uh, the elevator at about the $100 million floor in today's kind of monetary terms. So my, you know, I'll help take businesses up to about $100 million. And then as they go through an M&A or they're in, you know, Series C or D kind of levels of investment, uh, and they're continuing their journey. I go, okay, it's not fun for me anymore. I'm in meetings. I'm raising capital. I'm doing all the the slave stuff. Uh, I want to go back where the entrepreneurs are in the trenches, creating products, finding customers, and and having fun. Okay, so so but still, this is um, it's important to uh, draw attention to the fact that quite a lot of people in the in the startup community. Um, let's say, spend a lot of time talking about entrepreneurship, a lot of time advising people about entrepreneurship, but they aren't necessarily entrepreneurs themselves as they're different types of animals. But clearly, clearly you've been pretty successful and um, or very successful, any, uh, you know, depending on how you measure success. But um, in fact, that's a good question. How do you how do you measure success? I, this is slightly getting off the, the track I was going to ask. But um, what would you say? If if someone describes themselves as successful, or you describe yourself as successful, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, it means you know self actualization as a human being, you know, personal success, and mm -hmm. that means are you happy? Are you, you know, being a quality participant on the planet and the world around you and the people around you? And are you giving more than you are taking? So to me, that's the level of success. It's not about money and. Uh, uh, you know, acquiring things because I got news for you as I'm, you know, in the later stages of my life on this planet, we don't take any of this stuff with us when we leave here. Uh, you don't take any of your wealth. Sorry, Mr. Gates uh, and everybody else. When you go, all your billions stay behind. Uh, you don't take any of your, your acquisitions, your houses, your cars, all that. So, you know, what you leave behind and take with you is what you have actually contributed to the people around you and their lives and making the the world a better place and so by that measure i'm massively successful in in by my own metrics you know and 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 they have had the good fortune uh to be able to be in an environment in the us of a despite you know political craziness that we're all in right now and in this country and britain and poland to some extent as well um you know if you're if you're in an environment and and Poland to this day post Solidarność also has had this amazing ability to reinvent itself and to pursue entrepreneurship and pursue self actualization and those are the most important uh, measures of success that I try to impart to entrepreneurs and you know if you're delivering and building a quality product solving real needs for actual people and that's a sustainable venture in some way. Uh, hopefully through revenues and patronage of some kind, then you're doing great. Um, you know that it's right. around comes around is the yeah. is the kind of approach. I think it's very important uh, to have someone in your position say that because a lot of people don't really, you know, they're working like crazy trying to amass a lot of money, but they don't actually ask themselves why they're doing it, and they don't realize that it's not going to be, you know, the magic 
crock of gold at the end of the rainbow that makes them happy. It's whether they're happy during the journey of getting okay. getting there. And it's not. I'm, I'm not hostile to aiming for financial success, but if that's the goal by itself, life can be very empty and sad. And you mentioned, obviously, I, I'm aware of the fact you come. You come from Poland. Can you take? How old were you when you went? You went to America. Did you go straight to America? And you know, what, how, how did how did that work out? You called yourself a, a refugee. Was it a political refugee? What, what, yeah, what yeah. yeah. So, so this was during the Cold War. Okay, this was in 1959. I was four years old, and mm -hmm. uh, my single mother and myself uh, uh, during those Cold War years. Uh, you know, she made the decision. Obviously, I was a child uh, to leave Poland. And uh, so the backstory there is my grandfather was a Polish scientist. Uh, he built most of his career in Germany, in Berlin, uh, before the war. Uh, mm -hmm. His name was uh, Dr. Jan Czochralski. And uh, so Professor Jan Czochralski uh, created the process of growing single crystals uh, mm -hmm. in his youth. So he never like finished high school, we believe, uh, but, uh, you know, was an entrepreneur and was a very brilliant man and uh, and and went to Berlin to uh, uh, get involved in scientific pursuits and became part of a laboratory, uh, eventually ran the laboratory for several uh, large German uh, firms and uh, in the process invented this, uh, this uh, 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 method that is now called the CZ method after his name, Czochralski. And the CZ method is now being widely uh, attributed to having led to the creation of the electronics industry in the 1950s and subsequently the computer industry, arguably, uh, because it, it was the fundamental process to grow uh, 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 computer silicon uh, and, and uh, build chips and wafers. And so he, uh, so he found in his 20s uh, fame and fortune in Berlin uh, became very wealthy at a at a young age. Uh, his family, uh, you know, they had homes in Berlin, in Frankfurt, where my mother was born, uh, in Switzerland, in Warsaw, uh, and uh, during that time, uh, just before the war, he had an opportunity to come to the United States and uh, head uh, R and D for Henry Ford. Uh, he came to the U.S. a couple of times to visit with with Henry Ford and and investigate that avenue of life. Uh, at the same time, he got a request from the president of Poland to return to Poland to head up science uh, in the academic world for Poland. And as the story has come to me uh, over the years, is you know he weighed going to the United States and saying, "Nah, I've already." got wealth, I've got fortune, I've got success by the work that I've done. I don't need that. My country needs me. I'm going back to Poland and going to work, you know, with the government and the science uh, uh, in academia in, in, in Poland. So he, he chose to go back to Poland. Uh, then the war came and the rest is history. Uh, he got caught in a very uh, difficult uh, place during the war years uh, because he obviously was close to the Germans because he found success in Germany, Had a, he, he was also a, a dual Polish and German citizen, uh, but he did not cooperate with the Nazis because, you know, that was a, a horrible period. My mother actually ended up in labor camps uh, in uh, during that period. Uh, her brother and sister had already left Poland uh, uh, just before the war uh, came. And so she was kind of 
in one difficult spot. Uh, my grandfather and his wife were uh, stuck in uh, Varsava. And uh, so by day he was doing everything he could with his resources and the laboratories in, in uh, Varsava to help the Polish uh, or, well, to do what was required as the Third Reich took over all of the, the factories and facilities. But at night, he was using those same facilities to help create uh, grenades and, and other products for the Polish resistance and helping to uh, mm -hmm. musicians and artists and, and uh, people of, of uh, Jewish uh, faith, uh, you know, to to protect them from the invasion of, uh, of the uh, the Nazis. And so so that was the whole backdrop of what our family life was like after the war, of course, Germany didn't get uh, Poland because, uh, you know, Germany was <laughs> was ousted. Uh, Poland was given to the Russians and he didn't have any contacts or friends in, in Russia. And the uh, Polish uh, academic community never really accepted him when he came back to Poland because he didn't have a, a PhD. OK, he didn't have proper, uh, you know, doctorate academic credentials despite all of his work and accomplishments so he's kind of banished from the polish academic community too post-war so long story short he was banished everything was taken from him either by the nazis you know as with everybody else during that uh, time uh, and he was banished to back to ksenia his hometown where i was born in his house uh, after he died a, a few years after he died and uh, so he died with basically nothing and complete obscurity. Nobody even knew of this man uh, for about 50 years until in like the 1970s, uh, a professor at the uh, University of uh, Wrocław, uh, Professor uh, Pavel uh, Tomaszewski, uh, who is in the same field as my grandfather was in metallurgy and science, discovered his work and started making it his academic goal to uncover everything that my grandfather had done. And so he has done that and he brought all of this work and all of these contributions to science forward uh, and presented it to the Polish government and the academic society. And so over the last 20 years or so, suddenly my grandfather has become recognized and, and celebrated, I would say, uh, in Poland as being one of the most important contributors uh, on behalf of Polish science, uh, after sort of Copernicus and Madame Curie, and um, so fantastic. Well, I, I was certainly not expecting that. We we publish show notes with our podcast, so if anyone's listening to this and wants to look this man up, I've put links to the Wikipedia entries about the Chakralski process. Krowski, yes, <laughs> and his name is embedded in my name. So, so back to your original question, Richard, which is how did I, how did we leave Poland after my grandfather died and my grandmother, my mother stayed to take care of her mother, my grandmother, uh, who was alive when I was born. Once she passed away, my mother had the opportunity to assess what was life in Poland under the Russian rule going to look like? And she said she made the very brave decision as a young woman to say, this isn't going to be very good. Let's get out of here. And so we were able to obtain a invitation to come visit Canada. And mm -hmm. so we left Poland on a six month visa to visit Canada. When we got to Canada, we applied for political asylum to the United States. And because of those discussions that my grandfather had with Henry Ford and some of the people that he had met in Michigan, where my mother's uh, sister had settled. We got invitations uh, to come to the United States, actually were granted uh, political asylum by President 
Eisenhower and mm -hmm. uh, came to the U.S., settled in Detroit, and uh, the rest is history. So that's where I've yeah. grown up and, uh, and, and uh, experienced life for, for most of that time. Okay, so well, thank you very much. I am very so like pleased to discover something. I mean, I, the whole, part of the idea of this podcast, as I was explaining before we went um, went on air, is that I really like the idea of an interesting conversation reaching a wider audience. And you know, it's, it's so nice that other people get to hear this, not just me. That's that kind of validates the validates what what we do here at Project Cashmere. And um, when you were growing up, obviously, then you were an immigrant in the United States. You had some American. Immigrant family, you had been going there so young, you must have grown up feeling you were kind of American, I would imagine. But oh, no, no, not at all. And uh, let me no. explain to you the context for that. So we settled in Detroit because, again, my mother's sister pre war had already emigrated to Detroit. And like most immigrants who go out of their country, you know, I mean, in this current world of immigrant phobia that we all live in. Most people don't take the time to understand. People don't leave their countries because they want to. They mm -hmm. usually leave because they have to, you know, yeah. in search of a better life. Or it is like my choice is do I stay here and die for sure? Or do I go somewhere else and try to make that journey, try to survive that and maybe have a life there with my family. And so these are difficult decisions that that every immigrant makes. And so where you tend to go is where you might know somebody. And so that's the, you know, <laughs> the place everybody gravitates to. Hey, I got family. I'm coming to stay for a while, like forever. And mm -hmm. so we ended up in, in Detroit because there's a large Polish community there in Hamtramck. And uh, when we arrived there, you have to understand the context. Detroit was a blue collar city. It was all about the auto industry and manufacturing. And so, you know, we ended up, we came there with literally just a suitcase and nothing else. So off the boat political refugees came over on the SS Patori uh, to uh, to uh, Canada from Poland. And uh, in blue collar uh, Detroit, you know, everybody thought our family was from Russia because of my Polish accent. I didn't learn to speak English until I was eight years old. And mm -hmm. so everybody thought we were Russian, which was not a popular thing to be during the Cold War in blue collar Detroit. So as a child, I was beat up constantly. Interestingly, not by who people would think in today's context, by African-Americans or Latinos or anything like that. It was not racial strife. It was Klassenkampf in the in the you know German word of that sense, which is I was beat up by Irish children, German children, Italian children. You know, everybody was white. <laughs> and it was because they all thought we were Russian. And so I was beat up throughout most of my young childhood. And the way that I eventually got through that, which I also say is what changed the trajectory of my life and my entrepreneurial journey is by the time I was 11, my mother said, you know, I'm tired of you getting coming home bloody all the time and getting beat up because of your bad accent. We're going to get rid of your accent. And so she sent me for broadcast elocution courses, okay, to learn to speak like a radio broadcaster. Mm. And so from age 11 to 13, I went through this, this diction training, and that rid me of my accent. As you can tell, I have no accent at all. I sound mm. like an American broadcast journalist. Well, that, that was only for that purpose, to get rid of the accent. I continued to go through school in Detroit and pursued the destination that I thought was mine to pursue, which is to become a factory worker. So mm. 
I actually worked in Detroit auto plants. I was a card carrying member of the Teamsters, the United Auto Workers, United Steel Workers. You know, I can weld, I can press bumpers, I can drive a forklift. Um, and then one day in the factories, I almost lost both of my hands in an accident. Uh, one of the dies when I was pressing bumpers came unstuck from this giant press that was going up and down. And you had to reach in there, put the flat sheet of steel in, and then reach in when the press formed the bumper and went up, you had to pull it out. And mm -hmm. as I did that, the die came loose and came crashing down. And I just got my hands out of there in time, but the tips of my gloves caught and were caught in the die. And mm -hmm. at that moment, and a big light went on in my head that said, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I have a brain. I'm going to figure out how to use it. So I punched out of the factory, never to walk back into that life again. And I said, oh, great. Now I just now I'm unemployed and factories were paying really, really good money at that time. But I said, I don't have a job. I wonder what else I can do. And I go, I was trained to be a radio broadcaster. So hmm. I went and found myself a job in radio doing late night, you know, uh, uh, entertainment. I was a DJ and then I was a newscaster and so forth, went back to college. And so I attribute my whole change in life going from blue collar kind of an existence to becoming, you know, a college educated, corporately trained, eventual entrepreneurial person to my Polish accent, because I didn't have that. I would not have eventually gone into a career in radio. So that's a that's a quite an unusual entrepreneurial entrepreneurial so like uh moment it was like a reaction against something rather than uh like the quitting the factory yes totally and and, uh, and i did you sort of like code that because i was thinking this experience as a you know a, a boy being beaten up and your mother having the foresight to see that you know by helping you with change your accent you could like cease to stand out did you clock them that it was possible to make major changes in your life through education because i you know i wonder if that was just because sometimes kids aren't that reflective and did you sort of feel oh if i can learn that then later it made you feel you could learn other stuff too did you sort of learn that lesson back then or did that come later i i knew that i needed a college education i mean i just you know the, the, during that era even more so than today i mean you know the the entrepreneurs i've had the privilege of working with over my career many of them never finished college some of them barely finished high school you know especially mm -hmm. some of the brilliant coders uh, uh mm -hmm. but at that time you know, that was the course. You went to college, you got a degree. And so I worked full time because I had to. Uh, uh, and so I worked all day long. I would work 50, 60 hours a week. Uh, and I went to school at night and got my degree in three and a half years. I was always an overachiever. And I, I attribute that again to what I call my stupid immigrant mentality. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm here to work and to experience and to absorb as much as I can. And mm -hmm. so getting a degree was just something I felt I had to do. And that, you know, has served me well. But, you know, these days, it's by no means a necessity at all for people. Uh, you can become a very successful entrepreneur. You can become a very successful contributor to life without necessarily having academic matriculation and 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 that sort of a course. Um, again, it depends how you how you apply yourself. Okay, and when you obviously get it, changing jobs isn't necessary. I mean, I, I I think a lesson to learn here is the the process to become a 
successful entrepreneur isn't necessarily an overnight thing that you know getting a job in a radio station isn't you know getting and changing your job isn't making a change it's not starting a business when was the first moment where you was like acting as your own kind of as the principal in a business venture not working for someone but basically working for yourself how, how did that come about and what what was the first thing you did where it was basically it was your business not working for someone well so so that change came uh, also not consciously. I didn't suddenly say, I don't want to work for other people anymore. It was the change in environment that I put myself in. So so my the building blocks of my career and my professional business success, if you will, were first and foremost, I did get a very useful degree and I got it at night, which was taught by a lot of lay professionals out of real the real world of business. And so um, well, the what was the degree in? What were you studying? In uh, communications, international business. Uh, um, and so uh, it was taught by professionals at night school in a four year, I mean, Wayne State University in, in downtown Detroit in the hood. Uh, and uh, uh, but because of that, I got really practical training as part of my degree. It wasn't all academic uh, kind of stuff and theoretical. It was very, very practical and very useful. And I was able to apply that while I was already still in college to getting a job in market research. And market research is what kind of led me down a path of, of professional career development in marketing, communications, uh, and international business. And so the, the building blocks were the degree coupled with, I'm going, you know, I don't know anything about running a business. I didn't have any particular burning desire to start or run a business. This was not a particularly uh, entrepreneurial era in the 70s. I mean, you know, we were still reeling from the Vietnam War in the United States and, and you know, changing the pivot of this country, et cetera, et cetera. So you did what was safe to do, which is you went to work for a corporation. And so I went to work for a series of companies uh, that gave me the professional training that I felt I needed, and quite correctly so, in the reflective lens. I mean, I learned all about business and P&Ls and managing people and, you know, being responsible for divisions of corporations. And I call that my my 10-year uh, uh, experiential degree that I got paid for. So, you know, I, I was working for companies. They taught me everything I knew and allowed me to apply it in a series of progressively you know, larger career roles. The, the biggest corporation I worked for was Time Inc. Uh, in the cable television world and built cable television systems and operated them uh, uh, around uh, the U.S. And so with those two things, eventually when I tired of the industry, I wanted to stay in entertainment and consumer products because I really love that field. But I just felt the cable television industry was really a utility industry. It wasn't really an entertainment. Uh, it existed in this country because the phone company and the electric company just never saw the opportunity of using their infrastructure to also hang cable lines uh, on to transmit, you know, additional channels of entertainment and, and uh, informational programming. And so they allowed this whole other industry to come in, disrupt them, utilize their infrastructure and create a whole new industry. But I wanted to get out of that. I wanted to get back to content and creation. And so. I, I applied for a job that was uh, somebody looking for a head of marketing for a video software company. And mm -hmm. I thought I, I had ended up in the cable television industry in Washington, D.C. after working in New York City and other places. And I thought video software company, that sounds suspicious. I think this probably is pornography. 
which mm. I'll have a hard time explaining to my wife, but I'm going, I, I got to check this out because it might not be. Well, it turned out it wasn't pornography at all. It was microprose software. And microprose was in, in this era, in, uh, in 1985, was a mildly successful, but still very small. We had, I don't know, 25 employees. Uh, it was a, a video uh, game company and made games for Atari and Commodore computers. And I go, oh, that sounds like fun. That sounds interesting. And so I met Sid Meier, who was the creative co-founder of Microprose Software. Uh, he's a creator of Civilization, one of the you know most amazing uh, strategy games of all times. And we had a whole strategy division built around Sid and a whole simulation division around his co-founder, uh, uh, Wild Bill Staley, a former Air Force jet fighter pilot. And so we, we uh, uh, created simulation <laughs> games on uh, your simple little 64K machines that allowed you to be in the cockpit of a F-15 Strike Eagle jet fighter or a helicopter or in a submarine and all that stuff. And so I joined them as the head of marketing and grew with that company until we took it public. And so that was really my first entrepreneurial journey. I didn't start the company. I just was privileged enough to have enough marketing chops from the 10 years I spent working for corporations in the entertainment field to contribute to the success of Sid and Bill in building this company. But that gave me the taste of entrepreneurship, building a company from small. By the time we, you know, we exited, we had, I don't know, 160 people, five offices. I set up the European operations because I was the European guy. Uh, so I set up in London and, you know, set up offices in France and Germany and Italy and Spain and all that kind of good stuff. And ever since then, I've never looked back. I mean, I've always been a part of other people's entrepreneurial journeys. And occasionally I get a wild idea of my own and create something and find other people to join me uh, to, to build these businesses. But it's, again, it's never been about a destination. It's been about the journey and allowing yourself to be open and life to reach you in the way that it should. You throw a little of yourself to the, the wind in fate that way. Uh, but the things that should find you eventually will, and they take you on a path. And you don't know where that path leads. But, you know, if you're a good person and you try to do good things, it often will lead, hopefully, to good results. Yeah, and, and there's a certainly a very important entrepreneurial uh, lesson there that the... Um... I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off the sometimes the big opportunity isn't doing your own thing it's just getting on board with people who are doing something great and contributing like crazy because 
you know, I, I, it's a, people often say it's a huge mistake to be the smartest guy in the room. If you come across some people doing something amazing and you can get in at the right stage and be useful, you may be achieve far more during that time period being an important player in a, uh, a project that's going somewhere than than fighting, you know, putting all your effort into something that isn't isn't quite so good. And there's, there's a concept I teach in the entrepreneurship classes I run called opportunity readiness because the army has battle readiness where you're you're ready to fight but a very good question to ask someone anyone listening who's thinking they'd like to go into business one day is are you opportunity ready are your are your finances in order are your relationships in order is your health in order like if something great came along are you in a position where you're ready to go and it might take you six months to be ready to go but if you've just signed a credit on a supercar which is draining all your free cash that's a huge handicap right and it doesn't doesn't set you up so that's very interesting so that was your kind of breakthrough break breakthrough decision getting into business with um bill steely and sid meyer was your and, and then after that when you went public did that give you enough capital to start sort of doing your doing your own things more was that where i i actually the next thing that I did was join because again, my, my sweet spot is building these companies. So after we brought MicroProse software to Europe, um, we had capacity to bring in other products through our pipeline that we had established. So, so our company MicroProse did strategy and simulation games, but we thought, why not, why don't we bring some other American products to the European market? Uh, uh, you know, through the channel that we had built and established in in sales and distribution, and you know, localization and manufacturing and all that stuff that you needed at that time to to distribute your products uh, across the European countries. And so I reached back and we found several other companies in the U.S. that had non-competing products in other areas. Uh, one of those was Origin Systems, and a guy named uh, Richard Garriott, Lord British. And so Origin was, uh, his his uh, product line was the Ultima series of fantasy role-play games. Complemented our products perfectly. He, they were similarly sized and successful to what Microprose was when I joined them. And they were stuck at like $3 million in revenue, about 20 employees, had been around five years. And so we invited them on our journey into Europe. And so the it was Origin was founded by two brothers, Robert and Richard Garriott, uh, you know, both uh, dear friends and and, and mentors and, and colleagues of mine. Um, and so we brought their products. I brought their products into the European market and we became fast friends. And so when Microprose went public, as that was occurring, I already had decided I didn't want to be part of a public company. I already worked for two corporate public companies. And I said, you know, that's managing to shareholder expectations and quarterly earnings per share, blah, 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 blah. That's not really building businesses anymore. You know, where the products and the customers come together, that's the fun and exciting part. And so um, as Microprose went public, I just, I was the first of the executive team to say, I don't think I want to do this anymore. So I mm -hmm. exited and I exited stupidly in retrospect, but again, I didn't care before my shares vested, okay? So I exited without any real substantive capital. And so mm -hmm. I had to do it again. And I'm going, well, that was the fun part anyway. And so with uh, Origin Systems and the Garriott brothers, I joined them and we built Origin Systems into a very significant company also over the next five years and ended up selling that company to Electronic Arts. So we did a... a, a 
a merger with EA. We were the second uh, organization, second studio that Electronic Arts bought outside of its own internal product development. And again, with Origin Systems, I was uh, fortunate enough to have a actual former partnership role in the executive team with Robert and Richard. And there were two others of us, uh, three others of us. In, and so the six of us in that uh, uh, exit, if you will, we stayed on as you know vice presidents of electronic arts and helped build EA for, for a number of years after that. Uh, that was really the opportunity where I came out of that with some capital and said, okay, what do I do next with my life? And that's where I started for the first time several of my other businesses, which are still going to this day. So, uh, so it was, again, through working with other people that you eventually get to goal. And even when I built my own businesses, it's not about a, a, a team of one. You're all, the first thing we do at Capital Factory with the hundreds of entrepreneurs and startups we work with is make sure they all have a co-founder. You know, this stuff is hard. It's lonely. Uh, it it ravages you, you know, as we say, uh, you know, to be entrepreneurs, we're the only crazy people who quit a 40 hour a week corporate job to work 100 hours a week for no pay, you know, so, so you've really got to want to do it and doing it with somebody is the most important thing to balance the, you know, the technical or the creative talent and mind with the business capabilities, and then you build the rest of the team around that. So it's never, never a solo journey. No. And, and so how, how old were you when you managed to like get liquidity out of uh, approximately when you got liquidity out of origin? What stage in your life were you when you 35 years, 36 years old when I became officially a multimillionaire? You know, the, the rags to riches, Polish immigrant to American, you know, millionaire success story. But then also, you know, in that next couple of years, I, that's where I really had this other epiphany as I bought, like everybody does when you first taste that. Uh, and when you've lived modestly and had nothing is I bought a larger house. I ended up collecting some old cars. Not, not a, I'm, I'm too cheap as an immigrant to buy anything new or too expensive, but I, I collected several old classic cars uh, that cost less than one new car today. But I'm going, I have five cars now. I can only drive one at a time. Why do I need five cars? They're just rotting in my in my garage. So so again, it took about five years to go through that process to realize, as as another one of my dear friends, Dallas Snell from Origin, uh, uh, has coined. He goes, "Life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness is not the mission. It's not what it's all about." Okay, the happiness doesn't come through the acquisition of stuff. And so I have spent, you know, much of the rest of my life de-acquiring stuff and and uh, taking money. I mean, anytime my businesses find success, the first thing I try to do is get rid of all that money as fast as possible. So I start new businesses. I invest in things. I give it away to the creative class, to artists and writers and musicians who I just want to support and help them you know, on their journeys as creative talent. And they're usually the people that create the party and, and make a place fun and interesting anyway. So all the business and creative uh, and tech people show up uh, then and take credit for it. But it's the creative class that, that creates place. And they're always living hand to mouth. And so, you know, the thing that I've found in the last 20 years of my, my life and entrepreneurial journey is living minimally is really the way to go because it keeps me very dialed in along with the rest of the real world. 
Okay. I live kind of, kind of, you know, payroll to payroll as I do building my businesses that I stay close to what it's like in the real world. And you never get up into your, your, you know, your, your bubble of self-belief that, you know, I'm really important. I'm really successful. It's all about me. So if you, if you don't let yourself go there, uh, it's very empowering uh, to stay grounded, you know, and that's where I kind of live in this world between my, my blue collar existence and my, my white collar existence. And, and, you know, interestingly, I find myself at a, at a interesting place in this time in the United States. And again, in other countries where we have all of this strife and all of this division between kind of the, the people who have been left behind by technology you know, I really get that. I'm really understanding that because a lot of those people are people that I grew up with and that are my Facebook friends and that I still know. And they're still like generally working with their hands and they barely have a phone. They, they you know, they have a flip phone and they call it their smart enough phone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they are people who we in the technology world that we're, you know, we're building the next biggest, fastest, craziest thing. And it's about go, go, go and learn, learn, learn and do, do, do. We've forgotten that so many of the people around us in the first world and the, our life of first world problems are not keeping up with us in the technology world. And we have not taken a time out ourselves to figure out how do we bring them on this journey? How do we get them involved with the things that we're doing? Because in the meantime, what used to be considered a digital divide between kind of the haves and the have nots of technology is now deeper and it's become a social digital divide between those who know how to use technology in a healthy and productive way and those who barely have a clue and are feeling resentful about technology because they feel whether it's robots on the assembly line or you know the latest apps and, and and platforms that they have no knowledge about that they're getting left behind in the in the conversation that's a serious problem that we who are empowered through the medium that we're using right now we got to stop and figure out how we get the rest of those people on board in this journey, because otherwise, you know, in this country, in Poland, in the UK, everywhere else. And Poland is one of the most recent examples. I mean, you guys, you know, Poland is just barely out of Solidarność, uh, you know, time frame and, the, and you know, the, the revolution in the Polish shipyards. And yet right now there's a whole conservative class that's growing up there again, too, and is turning inward and nationalistic and, you know. That stuff is not healthy, given that we're living in a world that technology has brought us all very close together. You and I are now best friends, Richard, and we've just met in, over the last couple of weeks. But we're having a substantive conversation, you know, without having ever even actually been in the same room together. This, this, is, our, this is our first ever conversation. Yeah. I, I, and, and for me, it, it, you know, because we're both very privileged and lucky in different ways in the ways life has treated us, um, you know, we, we can afford that trust. We can afford that risk that, you know, I might, and, you know, we've, we've had enough, you know, and it's great to take that risk, but I do want to just uh, pick out one point in that story, which is incredibly important that, you know, I say to younger people that, you know, if I had known when I was younger, what I know now, I could have saved myself so much time and grief. And if there's anyone younger now listening to this, who is imagining that one day they will, and, if you try hard enough and you, you're lucky enough, you will do it. You make a lot of money. Remember what Fred said that he spent a few years after 
he got his liquidity, he got his his money moment, buying stuff he didn't actually need and didn't actually want. It may have given a bit of pleasure. But, you know, if you can leapfrog over that, you know, I don't say don't treat yourself to anything nice if you make a lot of money, but just keep keep the big picture in mind because it's what you contribute and what you're, what, how you're spending your days is so much more important fundamentally than what you have, right? It's, it's what you do and what you contribute, not what you own. Fortunately, Richard, I'm seeing that really rising to the surface in the current generation of young people that I'm working with, okay, and that I'm surrounded by, you know, even here in the first world, where they have this opportunity to go after the money and the exits and that whole path, more and more are turning their back on all of that, that if you're not developing products and developing a business and don't have an orientation that has social impact, you know, and and really cares about the real problems of the world and other people and the planet, you know, then you're wasting your time because we have so many things we need to address on those fronts because of my generation and the generations before me through the industrial era. And for, for a few hundred years now, we've really gotten off course. And and we're you know we're we're creating some danger in the world around us that you know could doom us as not not to go off into the gloom and doom scenario and, and make the conversation a bummer here. But I'm just saying the reality is we have some serious issues, and if people aren't focused on that with all the brilliant and intelligence and capability we have, especially in the first world, I mean we know the rest of the world is still trying to figure out how to get running water and food to eat. You know, I mean, they don't even have the luxury of having this conversation or these thoughts. There's, they're still at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, but those of us up here, we have a duty and a responsibility to like get focused quick. Uh, And the young people today are already tuned into that. They're for the most part, they're hoping we don't mess it up before they can take over or hoping we sort of like, exit the planet as our exit uh, sooner than later so that uh, so that we don't, you know, inflict irreversible harm. Yeah, like the older generation has done on the younger generation in the United Kingdom, but I don't want to talk about Brexit. So <laughs> um, what, 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 I, what I, I, just before we go on, I want to talk about capital. I, I want to ask you about Capital Factory and what that means. But before we get onto that, um, if you reflect, you've obviously been involved in multiple businesses and multiple organizations in different capacities. Um, just like share the, to say the three most important characteristics that let you know if you look at a business that it's a healthy one, whether it's behaviors or attitudes or mindsets. Because you, you see a lot of different founders, a lot of different organizations, and it's a critical thing in life to be able to assess organizations quickly, like, are they healthy? Are they good places to work with, to partner with? So what do you look for that helps you? You know, you might be wrong, but, you know, the early signs that things are great or terrible. So it, it is three things, actually, that it boils down to. The first one is, have you identified a true need? Is there a marketplace? Okay, because delivering a, a solution, whether it's a product or building a company, is about creating something that people actually need and want. If you have to create the need, you already have a giant problem. So find a need that actually exists and validate that. So it starts with the marketplace. Second thing is, what is your solution for that need? How viable is it? Will it really work? And you can, you know, you don't have to spend a year or two or three in product development to prove that up. We've got a a, a team here within Capital Factory that grew out of the University of Texas. It's called Three Day Startup. 
Okay, they go out there. I call them our ninjas. They go out to universities all over the world. And in three days, they put together teams of college students that have never met before. And they go through this three-day exercise, really intensive, to come up with a need in the marketplace, figure out a quick product solution, go out and validate it with actual people, come back and try to shape that into some sort of a, a founding business principle. And three-day startup shows how condensed you can really get this process to know whether or not you've got anything that's worth wasting your time for before you spend a year or two or three of your limited time on the earth chasing some rabbit down a hole that's going to end in 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 nothing uh so so you got to have the marketplace need you got to have a product and a real solution and have that validated by the marketplace and then the third element is do you have a team that can actually deliver on that are you capable of as an entrepreneur whether you're on the business side or the technical side do you have those two primary components addressed Rarely is that in the same individual. Usually there's a technical or creative genius, brilliant person that really needs to be focused on that side, but is generally deficient, although understands because they're intelligent, the business sides that exist, or it's the other side. It's a business person who has identified the marketplace, has an idea, but has no idea how to actually create the product. They need a technical or creative product co-founder when you have those two core elements of the team in place to address the marketplace and the product solution, you have the, the essential ingredients to go forward. And if you do that and your product really can address the needs of the marketplace, you should be able to find revenue, which is the sustainable long-term component of the whole exercise that allows you to create a real business, not a bunch of smoke. Okay. And I'm going to cut in there because all that together, Richard, and then they go out in search of investment. And that is the poison pill is yeah. to go out in search of investment to fund your, your business. One of the earliest investors I ever came into contact with looked me straight in the eye. Okay. This is founders fund first investors in Facebook and a whole lot of other stuff, Peter Thiel uh, and, and that group. And they looked at me straight in the eye and they go, Fred, raising money is not a business. Quit raising money, figure out what your product is, what the market is, get some customers, get some revenue, get some traction, then we'll talk. Putting investment ahead of actual revenues is a completely absurd notion that we often, especially in the tech world, perpetuate. We think that's the goal. I meet a founder for the first time, this country, Europe, anywhere, and all they want to talk about is, I need investment. Can, I, can you get me some money? I'm going, no, I can't get you some money. <laughs> if that's what you want to talk about, this conversation is over. You know, I want to know about what's your product, what's the marketplace, who are you all? That's the conversation. Okay, that's a that's a very I'm very happy with you said that. I keep on saying similar things to people I meet here in Poland, and it's always say, Don't talk to me, talk to customers. Uh, who cares what you think about your project? Who cares what I think? What do the customers and the users think? Then it's uh, it's like pressing play on a tape because I'm that old that I remember play. I, I, I know. I mean, we do date ourselves in that in that uh, sense, Richard. I'm going. I, I'm sorry. I'm an old school guy. I believe to run a business, start a business, you have to have revenue and you have to be profitable. You have to have a little more income than you have expense. Yeah. At that point, you even if it's like two percent, you're eking out profitability. Now you have an actual 
business. Yeah, and I, but what I you answered a question which is uh, I'm I'm very glad you did. I was actually thinking more in terms of like at a lower level. This is a very strategic level. I was thinking, you know, I'm thinking about the way places are managed, the way the atmosphere in the office, the way people interact with each other. You mentioned team, but like there are a lot of startups and bigger businesses where things aren't healthy. You know, maybe they're even they're making money. So at one level. You know, if they're making money, that's fine. But there are things that are wrong. And I'm thinking more like the sort of behaviors of leaders or of team members or atmosphere, um, the way meetings are run. What are the signs like you visit a company, you think this looks like a really great business. You know, it's not just the EBITDA and the, the profitability. What are the things you look for that tell you that a, an organization is in good health? Uh, that whole area is called culture. OK, yep. creating culture in an organization where you know, people really believe, understand and believe in the mission and the purpose of the organization and what it's trying to do. It's not transactional. You have to have, a, again, a long horizon. You have to be, you should be building a business for sustainability, for the long term. Um, and, you know, it's not about whether you become a hundred million or a billion dollar business. That's, again, not the point. You know, some of my businesses are, you know, just five, $10 million businesses but they've employed people for 20 years or more. And people ask me, hey, what are you more proud of? The businesses, you know, the little lifestyle, as they call it, almost like that's derogatory. Oh, your little lifestyle businesses or, you know, the companies that you help take public and, and built to, you know, large success and exits. And I'm going, you know, actually, I'm more proud of my small lifestyle businesses. And they go, really, why? I go, because they're still around today. They still employ people. They still bring happiness to the customers that walk in the door every day. Everyone's having a good time. And, you know, it's been around for, it's withstood the test of time. There's some legacy there, some, some durability. All those other businesses that you have heard about that I've been involved in and these great brands that we created, guess what? Those are all in now in the pages of Wikipedia. We look at them with great nostalgia, you know, but all that IP from Microprose and from Origin Systems and stuff sits in the, 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 the uh, sellers of these large corporations that don't even know they have this IP from 20, 30 years ago, uh, and, and they don't exist anymore. You know, they only still have uh, intrinsic value uh, uh, emotionally, but the physical manifestation of the business, the employment, the products, that whole experience, long gone, long gone. And so to me, we got to, we, we don't, we should not be so transactional and so, uh, uh, um, you know, so superficial all the time with what we do, because again, there's a lot of value to the stuff that still sits, I mean, Look at the Acropolis, look at the Colosseum, look at the Great Pyramid, look at stuff that, you know, entrepreneurs of their day built with like nothing. <laughs> you know, and made yeah. these things that are like, how did they even do this? You know, it boggles the mind. This is like impossible. You know, those things are still around. How do we create anything that has a little more sustainability than six months to three years while we exit, you know, and, you know, like that's some kind of a great goal and objective that has contributes nothing. Sometimes people ask me which of my businesses and I've, I've, I've started 35 businesses, 14 of them are. 40, 40, 14 of them are trading and making making a uh, making a living for different people. Sometimes me, sometimes not. But I 
people say, which ones do I like the best? And I said, that's like asking someone which of their children they prefer. You know, you can't, they're different. You know, each has its own character and obviously, um, but I, I want to move on to uh, Capital Factory. Could you describe what Capital Factory is and your role in it uh, for someone who's no idea? Yep. So, so Capital Factory started out uh, 10 years ago as a typical three-month summer accelerator by a group of entrepreneurs who had day jobs, had their own companies, but wanted to help uh, nurture the next uh, uh, group of entrepreneurs in Austin, Texas. And so they started this program. Well, after the third year, they said, wow, there's really a need for this like all the time, not just for three months over the summer because we happen to have the time. Uh, the building that we are in in downtown Austin is a 16-story building, and the whole top floor of Capital Factory, uh, or of this building, the Omni, uh, the Austin Center uh, is what it's called, became available, 24,000 square feet. And they went, wow, it would be cool to have a place to do what we do, uh, but that's a big risk. That's a lot of space, um, you know. This was early days. This was the we work did not exist. There was not co-working wasn't really even a term. They just took a gamble and took out the top floor of this building and said, we hope somebody comes. Well, within about 90 days of opening the doors, the place was full. You know, all of the entrepreneurial tech class from Austin came to Capital Factory and started participating. And so with that first group of companies and members, um, Capital Factory started to form. We are like every you know startup uh, uh, and 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 scale up. We are constantly in evolution. But what we've done is is kind of turn the model of what these places are on its head. So uh, at the very top of our funnel is we are a community organization. Okay, so we now have four floors of this building, about a hundred thousand square feet. And we have a lot of spaces in here that can be used for events. And the first thing we did, the founders did, this was just before I got involved, um, they opened the spaces up to the community. So all of those groups out there that have no place to meet, okay, the marketing for Facebook group, the Drew Paul developers group, the lesbian coders group, you know what I mean? It's like the world is full of them. They're meeting in somebody's living room or in a pizzeria or a cafe. They have no home. We invited them all in to be part of Capital Factory. So we would not be perceived to be some elitist institution on this top floor, beautiful space of this downtown office building. So everybody in Austin in the tech and creative communities goes, yeah, I'm a part of Capital Factory. I go to events there all the time. Then the next strata is you can become a member. To apply to be a member of Capital Factory, You, it's an app, application process just because you can pay the membership fee doesn't mean you're an automatic member. You have to apply and two existing members have to vouch for you that you have integrity, you are a good smart business person and and have a, a product or an innovation and you give more to the community than you take. Mm -hmm. So you can become a member and a part of the kind of inside circle of what goes on at Capital Factory. And then as you grow your startup enterprise or or find your co-founder and, and launch a new business, et cetera, you can eventually apply to be part of the accelerator program. As you grow through the acceleration phase of, of building your business, you can then apply into the uh, the the investment funding uh, mechanisms that we have here. And our goal really with this whole exercise and we run the whole facility on a break-even basis. We are not in the space operation business. That's, again, we work. 
We are here to find the best entrepreneurs working on the greatest companies and products and invest in them, become a part of their success and help grow them into the, the Austin and the Texas ecosystem. So we've now done that successfully with about 250 companies, most of which are still alive to this day and are in various stages of growth and development and evolution. We've got about 700 companies active in what we do at any given time. Uh, about 200 are in our accelerator program. We have 250 mentors here. There are people like me, you know, seasoned entrepreneurs, built many businesses that help these uh, companies in their journey. Uh, and then specifically in my role in international is I help our companies as they're scaling move beyond the U.S. market opportunity, although that's kind of hard because the U.S. opportunity is so large, so homogenous that you could be very successful here, never have to think about the rest of the world. But because you, most of our companies typically are in the SaaS space, they live live online in the cloud and the internet around the world. So they, they quickly find customers in other markets. So we help them follow that path, see what other markets, typically Europe is a starting point. They can grow their business around because, you know, doesn't care where you find, the world doesn't care where you find customers and revenue as long as you do. That helps you get follow on investment and scale and grow your company. Uh, so I help our companies grow externally. And then we also help entrepreneurs from around the world from Poland and other locations to come into the U.S. market with a soft landing. And so we've created a whole program called Touchdown Austin and several other programs, uh, one week, one month, three month kinds of programs of, of various shapes and, and duration for cohorts or individual companies that we help and bring into Capital Factory, work alongside our entrepreneurs do market familiarization of the U.S. market, product market fit, help them find their first employees in the, in the U.S. here, help them find their first customers and help get them off the ground. So that's kind of the, the two sides of, of how we operate. And, and right now, interestingly, because we're having a conversation with you in Poland there, um, we happen to have a, a great new presence that has just spun up with the Polish consulate in Houston, uh, and specifically their Polish trade and investment agency. Uh, and they've got a wonderful representative uh, here in Texas now, uh, Susanna uh, uh, Kobzinski. And uh, she, in fact, she introduced you and I to each other. Uh, she's just back from Poland and she and I are, you know, putting our heads together articulating a whole set of programs that we want to help build to build a pipeline between Poland and Texas. Not always California and San Francisco, not always New York and, and Boston on the East Coast for a whole lot of reasons where Texas really has a, a huge value proposition. Again, I came here as an entrepreneur 28 years ago and thought I'd be here for two years on my way from Washington, D.C. to California in the games business and entertainment, but have been here for 28 years and built multiple companies. That's because Texas has a whole list of propositions that are really startup and scale-up friendly that California, New York, Massachusetts do not have. In terms of light legislation, we have a part-time legislature in Texas, not full-time making rules, so it's very business friendly. No income tax at the personal level or the corporate level for the state of Texas, where in those other states, it's anywhere from eight to 12% added taxation beyond the federal level. We're centrally located, so you can get to California or to New York from here on a three-hour flight, have meetings, come home, sleep in your own bed the same day. Uh, and so Texas is a really, really sensible place for Europeans to enter the U.S. market 
if they only know that Texas is not just filled with, you know, cowboys with guns, drinking beer all day long and shooting each other, you know, as the, the, the you know, the movie lore has it. So, you know, we actually have a Warsaw, Texas, okay, outside of San Antonio. There's a whole Polish uh, community here with pierogi and wumpki and everything else and lots of pivo. And so, so we welcome entrepreneurs to come into the U.S. market. And so Texas all by itself is the 10th largest GDP economy in the world if it was its own country again, which it was 175 years ago. 10th largest. So it's larger than Russia as a economy. And the only one larger in the United States is California at number seven. But again, they come with a whole list of problems over there that we don't have. And so between Texas being the 10th largest GDP economy and with Austin, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, and San Antonio, you have four of the 11 biggest cities in the United States right here within a three-hour drive of one another. Massive market, four of the 11 biggest cities. So guess what? I don't care what kind of business you're in. If you can't come to the middle of Texas and find customers and find revenue and find traction right here within a three-hour drive, you have no business going to any other places to to uh, develop your your uh, infrastructure. But if you're successful here, scaling to the rest of the United States, very straightforward. I mean, it's because it's a homogenous market. So you can grow your business. And all, all I tell entrepreneurs, and I've told this to many who have made the wrong decision and set up in San Francisco, because that's where they were told by their investors or their government or whatever, oh, you got to go to San Francisco. You're in the tech business. And they do that. I'm just here to tell you that if you are successful, and let's say three years from now, you have 500 employees, may you be so successful. If you have 500 employees in San Francisco, you're going to be bleeding cash and expense and employee retention issues, et cetera, et cetera. If you have 500 employees, you will want 490 of them to be in Texas just for balance sheet reasons and five of them in a biz dev office in San Francisco and five in a biz dev office in New York being close to customers and capital and other opportunities. But you want to scale here in the middle of Texas where it's like kind of like Poland, got a lot of room here and not a huge amount of people. And Texas, as we say, is open for business. So so again, we're working on building that pipeline between Poland and Texas and uh, and look forward to starting to bring more Polish companies here to uh, to experience that opportunity. Well, Fred, Fred, I mean, that's been a, a very comprehensive sort of pitch for the reason Capital Factory exists and it's pretty persuasive. In terms of how we might work together, I've got good relations here with the sort of equivalent institutions here in here in Poland, in I and here in Krakow, in the south of Poland, and you know, one idea that comes to mind is, you know, it would be great if you or some of your colleagues could come over here, maybe bring some companies with you on something like a, a kind of trade mission or something like that. Um, is because uh, what the local government here, obviously. You know, at one level, you can see the perspective. It's not great news for Poland in the short run if companies up sticks and disappear off to Texas. I know that's not what you're saying, but I'm thinking about the bureaucratic mindset. You know, like- I'm not moving them at all, Richard. In fact, uh, because again, Poland has got brilliant technical talent. I mean, I know this. I mean, Google has validated that with their with their campus and all. You know, Facebook and everybody else who has opened up operations in Poland. Brilliant. I mean, great universities. Brilliant talent great work ethic. And I'm not saying that just as a poll. I'm saying that 
objectively, I mean, what Poland has done to reinvent itself since Solidarność is nothing short of like spectacular. I mean, it is arguably the leading economic and, and sort of social country of the former Eastern Bloc, you know? And so that is recognized. And so to any Polish company, I, not at all move your operation here. I'm saying leave your talent in Poland. I mean, they can come visit anytime and we'll, you know, drink Pivo together, but, um, you know, stay in Poland for the economic values that that represents, but use Texas as your entry point and your leverage point at bringing your business as it starts to scale into the U.S. market in a very capital uh, efficient sort of way, but yet with great cultural uh, connectedness, because again, Texas was settled uh, in its second generation here, not originally, it was by Native Americans and, and Mexican people, but in in the sort of invading species, it was the Europeans, okay? So that, that's who came and really kind of got the Texas entrepreneurial party started, if you will, for better mm -hmm. or worse. And so the, the European roots in Texas are are deep and enormous, and it's a great place to to just grow and scale your business while still having all that success back home in Poland. And obviously the, the EU is not a small market. It's larger than the US. And so being able to concurrently, and you should these days, especially if you live on the cloud, you should be able to build your business concurrently, not consecutively in both Europe and the US. Okay, that's that's very clear. So, is, you know, is there a possibility we can get you over here and you can? Uh, do, would you like to come and visit us here in Krakow? We oh, can absolutely. That's in the cards as part of this 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 program that I'm working on with uh, Zuzana and and the Polish Trade and Investment Agency. And we actually want to do some things and bring the first group of Polish companies, a few to start with, uh, this fall in October to Austin for Austin Startup Week to kind of get the the conversation started. We're working on a one week program right now that uh, Polish Trade and Investment and her team can go back and, and start to invite some people over. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I've met uh, through uh, uh, actually Susanna and and uh, a professor here at the University of Texas who has done some work uh, in the past with the University of Łódź, uh, uh, Bob Peterson. Uh, I've met uh, Pavel Bogniars uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, Warszawa, and he uh, heads the uh, uh, MIT Entrepreneurs Forum in Warszawa that's connected to Boston, and they've got a lot of good traction going in the health and life sciences and medical area there. But he and I have become acquainted, and we're talking about how he and we and Polish trade and investment can work together to create really a, a sustainable pipeline in a variety of verticals for Polish companies to come into the U.S. market. And conversely, a part of that flow, because it's two ways, is us bringing more and more people over to Poland as part of, I mean, we're in Europe all the time anyway. I'm there four or five times a year. So uh, coming there and, and, you know, again, because I'm Polish, I I have a lot of families still there. I have, I find excuses to come back uh, uh, to the country um, to to find opportunities for how U.S. scale-ups can take advantage of the opportunities and the talent that exists in Poland uh, as they scale their business in the European market. Fantastic. Well, if there's anything I can do at all at a local or international level to help with that, I'll be delighted to do my best. I, I think that what, what you're doing, I, I actually posted a link to Susanna's LinkedIn profile in the in the uh, 
the Facebook thread underneath this and I'll go in the show notes. So if there are people listening to this who want to get involved, they can get in contact with her. Or she, with amazing. Yeah. She, I mean, she, she's only been like, I don't know, four or five months on the job. We actually met at Austin startup week in capital factory, like six months ago. And now they created this new position. She happened to get it. It's based in Houston, but she's here all the time and things are moving very quickly uh, because, yeah. we have, you know, South by Southwest, our big interactive music film conference just took place a couple of weeks ago here. It's 100,000 people, 25,000 from all over the world. You know, there were actually bits and pieces of Polish companies in that dele in that presence that didn't have any real formal like sponsorship uh, and, and presence, but they were here. And I found some of them, uh, some amazing Polish, you know, filmmakers, some game companies, uh, uh, you know, a couple of, of exhibits uh, that were brought over a great expense from Poland, some, some really cool technological art installations. I mean, the talent is there. And so we are very committed to building this pipeline and to starting to bring entrepreneurs over here for Austin Startup Week, then something larger, hopefully for South by Southwest next year. That's not just a trade show stand and, you know, in that kind of a presence. But I mean, that really starts to to open up the entrepreneurial opportunities and conversations of what goes on in Poland for people who are here and using something like South by Southwest and that global launch platform to spotlight some of the amazing stories out of Poland. So watch this space. I know where to find you, Richard. I've got your <laughs> your considerable contact information too, and and you are you are totally a part of this posse and and uh, and this pipeline that we want to establish. Okay, we'll get, we we've run over time because. Uh because it's such an interesting conversation. But I, I wanted just to share, I read an article about you and you've got this hobby of picking up litter. Can you just, I, I want to change the subject for a moment to something. <laughs> That's can a change in subject. Can you, can, can you, and we'll obviously follow up on the other stuff offline, off the air, but um, can you tell people about this hobby, why you do it and what it is? Sure. Well, it's, I don't have a lot of time to take vacations because I'm running too many businesses and involved in too many things. So, so I take my vacation in what I call two hour increments. So it's a beautiful day out. I don't have anything on my calendar for two hours. I live about one mile from Capital Factory, right on the river in an old condominium. And that's where I have a kayak and a canoe. And so I dash home, I hop into my kayak and I'm kind of a high energy person, as you can tell from this conversation, you know, have a lot of things going on at the same time. So I get out onto the river and I paddle for about an hour just to kind of relax and get all my energy loose and, and, and just, you know, get one with the environment again. And then I exhaust myself. But I want to be productive while I'm out there. So I always take a couple of trash bags with me. And on the way back from my kayaking down the river, I pick up garbage on the river uh, because somebody needs to, you know, so we have a beautiful river runs right through the middle of our city and it always has a lot of uh, garbage floating around. So I try to come back with at least two bagfuls of garbage with me and my kayak and garbage uh, when I return to my dock. And uh, the favorite thing that I do is, uh, is I find the tennis balls. There's a lot of tennis balls floating around because we have a dog park uh, up the river a little ways and people are throwing balls out to their dogs to jump in the river and go chase them. Well, some of them get away and they float down river. So I pick out all the tennis balls. And then uh, what I do is I paddle up river to where the dog park is. And I take all the tennis balls and I throw them back at the dogs uh, and, and, and free them back to the, uh, to the ecosystem. So 
that's that's kind of my crazy garbage story. <laughs> I want to get into this because we, I, I, as I think I told you, I, I organized a TEDx event and we had a special message from Jeff Kirshner who set up a project called Literati, which got on the TED stage, which is an app you load into your, your, your iPhone or your Android phone. And every time you pick up a piece of litter, you take a photograph of it and it's creating a map of litter being collected all over the world. Nice. And, and it's a, it's a social project, not a business project, but it's solving an important problem. Um, Nobody's got to do it, right? And I, I just want to take the opportunity to have a shout out for Literati. I'll post a link in the show notes. Um, Fred, it's been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate it enormously. Is there any final message you'd like to, to send out to the Project Casualness listeners in, in Poland or anywhere else in the world? Uh, probably only that if you've really stayed with us during this whole conversation, which has been lengthy, uh, thank you, Richard, for for the time and the and the and the journey uh, as we get to know each other through this conversation. And, and thank you to your listeners for taking the time to you know hear my story. And and I look forward to uh, you know from wherever you are to working with you if you uh, find your way to Texas at any point in time, whether it's socially or on on a business mission. Okay, my message to Texas listeners, if they hear this, is that I'm coming. Okay, that's number one. Uh, right. number one is that, that when Fred's here in Krakow, I will organize an event or a party. So if anyone of my Krakow community is listening, then they are welcome to let me know that they'd like to be there when Fred comes. Uh, Fred, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much indeed, and we're going to follow up and stay in touch. Hey, Richard, what, one more thing. My, my uh, partner in the uh, studio here just mentioned that I did not mention uh, that we're also uh, broadcasting here today out of our uh, podcast studio at Capital Factory. So while you're doing this, he's also capturing this information. And so we have a podcast here called uh, Austinpreneur. So it's Austin with Preneur, like entrepreneur at the end of it. So it's at Austinpreneur, and that's where we have a whole series of podcasts with interesting people who have come visited us uh, here in uh, in Texas. And uh, so from one podcast to another, uh, you know, Richard, you are now part of our podcast journey here as well. And uh, look forward to continuing these conversations uh, together. Okay. Well, that's a slightly sort of technical end to the sort of the final, the final <laughs> but that's not a problem. Um, we, I'm posting a link. I'll post a link to to. Austin Pruner in the in the show notes as well. And once again, thank you very much for your time. And we're going to stay in touch. Brilliant. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but it's about new individuals. It's about you know um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But but the, the you know the art. 
artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now, not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.